Acts chapter 11. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning, but we're going to pick up the reading in verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Of course, Luke uh, records the events in the book of Acts that he witnessed and that he was uh, informed of. And so Luke is writing Acts 11, starting verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came, he had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them uh, all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch so... It was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the, the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his abilities, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study, just uh, by way of recap, by way of reminder, last week we looked at verses 19, 19 through 20. And I think it's, an, uh, it's important to remember that it's in this chapter that we see the book of Acts shifting gears. The church of Jerusalem is no longer going to be a central focus. The ministry of Peter is going to give way to the ministry of Paul. You know, uh, honestly, last week, tell you the truth, I was just very encouraged by the Bible study last week as we looked at men, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, you know, who we said were heroes of the faith. Uh, I mean, I was encouraged... Uh, to see them, they were the first ones to target the Gentiles with the gospel. They specifically went after these Hellenists to share Christ and the message of the cross with them. And, and one encouragement that I walked away with last week was when persecution, when difficulties come our ways, we should be like these guys. When persecution was directed at them, was directed at the believers causing them to run for their lives. These heroes of the faith, you know, uh, chose to share Jesus Christ with others. I mean, they focused on the kingdom instead of focusing on the hardships that were uh, before them, that, trusting in the Lord. Uh, and, and I think it's just a good reminder, at least it is for me, difficulties and hardships can't cause us, we can't allow them to cause us to lose focus. We need to be looking for, continually looking for opportunities and then seizing those opportunities to share Jesus Christ with others. We need to be looking for opportunities to magnify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, last week we also took a look at Barnabas and we saw that he was a good man. He was a man that was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And, and as I said last week, isn't that the way you want people to uh, see you? Isn't that the way you want people to describe you, to talk about you? Uh, you know, Barnabas was the, the perfect guy to send down to Antioch to see what was going on down there, to check out what was happening down there. And we saw last week that when Barnabas arrived in Antioch, right, he saw the grace of God and it made him glad. He was glad at seeing that. And again, when you see God's grace, even though it's not a shape or a size or a color or anything like that, when you see God's grace, you know it. And, and, and again, how I desire people to see God's grace in our lives, 
that we would model his grace, that we would reflect his grace. You know, and may our lives result in making the hearts of those that see us, may our lives result in making them glad. You know, uh, may, may we cause them to want to have what we have. And that's a saving, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And then finally, in our recap, we saw last week the need to follow Jesus with a predetermined purpose, right? To continue with the Lord, no matter what comes our way. We need to purpose in our hearts to be in his word, to be in his word on a daily basis. Uh, You know, the old saying says, seven days without being in God's word makes one week, right? It's a play on words, right? Makes one week, seven days, W-E-E-K, but it makes one week. Uh, We need to purpose in our heart to be in the word. We need to purpose in our heart to trust him in every circumstance. We need to purpose in our heart to be witnesses for him. If we fail to purpose it in our heart to be a witness, then we'll never be a witness. I mean, that's just the way it works out. And we also need a purpose in our hearts to believe that God is working in our lives. He's working in my life, even though we don't see it, even though I don't see it or you don't see it. We need to purpose in our heart to believe he's working in our lives because that's what he's doing. He's working in our lives even when we don't understand the, uh, the events that are surrounding us, that are swirling around us. Again, I found these things to be very good reminders, uh, at least for me. The, the men of Acts 11 are very good examples to us how we should seek to live our lives. Now, moving on, I don't think it's a good thing. You know, I don't think it's a good thing. If you come to a Tuesday morning Bible study, I mean, one of the things that I say frequently is like, well, that's not what the text says. You're reading into the text. And I don't think it's a good thing to read into the text. But I don't think uh, what I'm about to say is reading too much into the text. The reason is because verse 21 says a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And then verse 24 says a great many people were added to the Lord. And even though it doesn't uh, say it specifically in our text, I think that we can infer that the work that Barnabas witnessed there in Antioch when he got down there to check out what was going on, that work was so great. There was such a response to all that God was doing there in Antioch. I think Barnabas, when he gets down there, he realizes it was more than he could handle. So what does he do? What does this good man, this man who's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, what does he do? I believe the first thing he does is he begins to pray. He begins to pray and says, Lord, what would you have me do? I mean, like, I need help. Lord, I need help. And I I think that's what every good man who's full of faith in the Holy Spirit would do. And that's why I don't think that we're reading into the text too much. I think that's what Barnabas did, even though we don't read it specifically in our text. And it causes me to ask this question. Are you, am I, are we quick to pray? You know, when we, when we are faced with difficult situations, when we're faced with, with things that we don't understand or, or things that are too great for us, man, are we quick to fall on our knees? Are we quick to go to the Lord in prayer? I honestly think that's exactly what Barnabas did. And I, I think that because a steadfast prayer is a common trait among good men who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas knows that Antioch is 300 miles away from Jerusalem, right? The logical thing, humanly speaking, the logical thing to do would be to send back to Antioch and ask them to send down some guys, send down some of the elders in the church so they can help with the work that's going on down here in Antioch. But that's not what Barnabas does, right? I believe that Barnabas goes to prayer. And while he's praying, he remembers this guy named Saul. Says in verse 25, 
Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Barnabas remembers Saul. Now, depending on who you're reading, right, uh, Saul has been in Tarsus now somewhere between 8 and 12 years. And during this time, we have no record of what he's been doing. I think, and I, I honestly believe this, he's serving the Lord during this time. He's telling people about Jesus. I mean, what would you be doing if you were saved in a radical way like Saul was, right? Where, you're, where you see Jesus and he speaks to you. And I mean, you go back and read that encounter. What would you be doing if that was your salvation story? You'd be sharing Christ with everybody. And now Barnabas, he's in serious need of help. And so he goes and seeks after Saul. And I think the lesson here for us is so very about, valuable. Again, the logical thing is to get word back to Jerusalem. I mean, they're the ones that sent Barnabas out, right? Who else would you ask for help before you ask those guys that sent you out? But what Barnabas does instead is he doesn't lean on his own understanding, right? I believe Barnabas is the kind of man who acknowledges God in all of his ways. And I think it's God who's directing his path here to look for Saul. You know, it's God who brings Saul to Barnabas' memory. And, and don't forget, Barnabas has a relationship with Saul. Remember back in Acts chapter 9, right? It was Barnabas who brought Saul to the apostles. It was Barnabas who declared to the apostles how Saul had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. And that he had spoken, that Jesus had spoken to Saul. And how Saul afterward preached boldly uh, in Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Lord brings Saul to the mind of Barnabas, Barnabas, this good man, this man who's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, he says, of course. You know, let's go get him. And it says in verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Now, I think it's good to understand the word that, that Luke uses here, saying that Barnabas sought Saul, that word seek, it's, the, it's only used one other place in the New Testament. And it happens to be Luke who uses it uh, there in, in his gospel. Remember when Jesus was left behind in Jerusalem as a little boy, and his, parently, and his parents frantically sought for him. That's the word that is used here for Barnabas seeking Saul. It literally means to search high and low in, while you're searching for something. Leave no rock uh, unturned. That's how Barnabas looks for Saul. Another thing that's important to see is what was going on with Saul. It's important to understand there's always a preparation that precedes presentation in the Bible. 40 years of preparation in the desert before God could use Moses to deliver the children of uh, Israel to, to lead them out of Egypt into the promised land. Here, it's been 8 to 12 years, again, depending on who you read, where Saul has been serving the Lord in obscurity. But now the Lord is going to bring him into the forefront of the ministry, the ministry of getting the gospel out to the world. To me, that's tremendously encouraging, right? I mean, you may feel lost here in Truckee. You may feel uh, lost in your job, may feel lost on the job site. You may feel like you're forgotten by God. But that's not the case. God is preparing you. God is giving you experiences that are so important for what God is going to do. He's not done with any of us. He's at work in our lives. I have this quote in one of my Bibles. Um, it's actually <laughs> very, very important quote to me something that I refer to frequently. And it says this, whenever you are called to pass through an experience that is unusually trying and difficult, 
Comfort yourself with the thought that you are being fitted for some higher purpose that has not yet been made known, but which will lay its demand on that very experience which has been permitted for that end. And when you look back on your life, you'll see how all has been ordered to fit you to fulfill a ministry to others that would have been less worthily fulfilled had you been excused from the tears, from the hardships, from the privations of a single day. Be brave. Be strong. Be trusting. God is faithful. He is to be praised. Saul seems to be a little bit lost in Tarsus. He doesn't know what's going on. But you know what? God's developing him. And God is at work developing each of us. That's the truth. He's developing you. He's developing me. Right now, through the things that we're going through, He's developing us. Each of us are in separate, it's kind of neat to think about, I think, but each of us are in separate and different stages of development. But that's what God is doing. He's most certainly at work in our lives, in our situations, in order to prepare us for something coming tomorrow. You know, something that's coming next month or next year. The very thing that we're going through now is equipping us for a very, in a, in a very wonderful way, right? To bring glory to the name of our Savior next month, next year. And that experience next month, next year, God is going to use, he's going to use it to prepare us for what he wants to do after that, right? I love it. We're going to see this throughout Paul's life as we continue in the book of Acts. Serving the Lord is a one step at a time type of thing. It's just taking baby steps. It's just taking baby steps as we go forward. As Saul faithfully serves the Lord, the Lord now is going to begin to entrust him with more. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said? He said, you know, if you're faithful in the little things, He's going to give you, you know, greater things, right? Um, you know, the Lord, uh, the Bible tells us not to despise days of small beginning. That's an important verse to me also. Not to despise the days of small beginnings. You know, Lord, it's not like the ministry you've given to me is mi very meaningful. It's not that very big. In fact, it's not very much of anything at all. Listen, whatever God has given to you, whatever he's given me, whatever he's given us, man, we need to pour ourselves into it, right? And God will raise us up and he'll give us more. He'll raise you up for a greater work in his timing. That's the promise that he gives to each one of us. Well, Barnabas seeks out Saul in verse 26. It says, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was... For a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Barnabas goes, he gets Saul, he brings them back, and they begin a teaching ministry. And I find this so very interesting. And just a few verses here in this section of Acts that we're looking at from 19 to, to 30. You know, just a few verses. Uh... God gives us a tremendous insight, right? Back in verse 20, we have these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they're preaching. They're out there preaching. And then back in verse 23, we see Barnabas. He comes, and what he, what's he doing? He's encouraging. And then in verse 26 here, we see Saul, and he's teaching. This is the way I think it it is with ministry. Barnabas goes out. He gets Saul. He brings him back 
into the ministry, brings them into the ministry, and there's preaching going on. People are getting saved. There's encouragement going on. And they're encouraged to go for it with Jesus Christ, to run after him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there's teaching going on. This body of believers are being uh, taken deeper into the word of God. All of this is so very vital to a healthy ministry, right? And again, the context of Saul and Barnabas, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful because of what we see going on. What do you see uh, in regards to Saul and Barnabas? I see discipleship is what's going on. You know, Barnabas is involved in a work and he brings Saul into it. He throws his arms around Saul and he begins to disciple him. He's purposely involving Saul in ministry, discipling him and raising him up for the ministry. Saul's able to see firsthand, you know, the preaching that's going on. How, 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 do, you, how do you do these things? How do you become a teacher? He's able to see how, the, how to meet people where they're at. He's, he's seeing how to encourage them in their faith. And Barnabas also gives Saul, you know, these opportunities to teach. You know, the reason I bring this up is I think it's God's heart for each of us to disciple others. Each of us to disciple others. Right? To be part of raising up other people. To show them the how-tos of walking with the Lord, of serving the Lord. You know, you may think, well, I don't know how to do it. Well, how long have you been walking with the Lord? That's what you show them. That's what you talk about. You just show them. Hey, this is what we do in these kind of circumstances. You know, the how-tos. In order to, we do it in order to, to, to see them sent out, raised up, sent out. You know, to preach, to encourage, to teach others. And I really think if you're not engaged in discipling someone, then you're the one that's really missing out. God has so much for us as we disciple others. I truly believe it's God's heart for us because it's something that we see repeatedly throughout the Bible. After this, we see, we see Paul and what he does, right? What does he do? We see him throw his arm around a, a young kid named Timothy and brings him into the ministry. We see him throw his arm around another young guy named John Mark. Okay, didn't work out the way that Paul thought it was going to work out. But in reality, that young John Mark becomes vital to the ministry, Paul says. He becomes vital uh, to Paul later on in life. But we also see Paul, he throws his arm around a Silas. He throws his arm around a Titus. And he works to see these guys raised up in the faith, raised up in the ministry. And, and you know what? I'd encourage you this morning. Really, if you're not discipling somebody, pray about it. Ask God to bring you someone that you can pour yourself into. Pray and ask God to bring someone to you that you can encourage to run after Jesus Christ. You know, what I believe, and I, I believe it because I've seen it, but, but what I believe you'll find is that as you begin to disciple and teach, you know, others, right? You'll see them take what you've poured into their lives. And they'll begin to teach uh, and pour those things into the lives of other people. And it's such a beautiful thing. You know, my best friends, and I'm so thankful to God. He's blessed me with a, a great number of, of guys that have come around me. That are, that are my best friends. All younger guys. You know what? Uh, this summer, we've had two guys that I've discipled and their families come and visit us at our house already this summer. Such a blessing. But my best friends, guys that I've discipled, you know, it's such a blessing to see them running for the Lord, giving their lives, serving Jesus. And truth be told, you know, I don't even actually... At first, I didn't know what the term meant, but I don't actually like the term discipleship. Because to me, you know what? I just saw it as building friendships. And again, my best friends are guys that I've, I've spent time with. We've invited them into our home. Uh, we've sat around 
the dinner table together. They've enjoyed meals with my families. And, uh, you know, we crack the, the word of God uh, open and we discussed it. You know, what do you see in this verse? What does the Lord mean when he says these kinds of things? You know, how, do, how are we supposed to apply these things to our lives? It's just a discussion. It's just friends. It's iron sharpening iron, you know? And it's just a back and forth intended to get them to dig into the word in a deeper way to find the answers. You know, and again, the result for me has been deep and enduring friendships. You know, and it all started out with reaching out to these young guys and just inviting them into our house. Just hanging out with them. Talking about Jesus. Just talking about life and our, and our walks with Jesus. Listen, I'm not intending to offend anybody here, anybody watching online. But I want to encourage you. If you're a seasoned saint, and, and, and uh, I, I can't think of a good reason, if you're a seasoned saint, why you wouldn't be discipling someone. In fact, I think you need it. I think you need to be pouring into someone else so that your love doesn't grow cold. I can honestly say that I've gotten more out of, uh, you know, dis discipling others than I've probably given to them. You know, it's a tremendous joy to see these guys that I've spent time with running for the Lord, taking uh, them under our wings and seeing them grow and flourish. And now they're serving in their churches. They're involved in their own ministries. They're around the world doing great things. And I think that this is evident by the fact that very soon, right, this, this willingness to see them grow and flourish, the joy that comes from that. I think it's evident because very soon in the book of Acts, we're going to read that the team that's being sent out from Antioch is Paul and Barnabas. But then shortly after that, we're going to read that it's, uh, I, I should have said it initially as Barnabas and Paul, but shortly after that, we're going to read it's Paul and Barnabas, right? And I can just see in my mind, Barnabas, I mean, he's just so joy-filled with what's going on in Saul's life and Paul's life. He's just kicking back. He's just enjoying seeing Paul going for it with the Lord. You know, he clearly sees the Lord's hand on, on Paul. You know, and I can just see him joyfully just saying, go for it, Paul. Go for it, man. Keep running for Jesus. And I love it because Barnabas, who's, a, again, a good man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't have to be the point man. He doesn't have to be that guy that's out in front. Right? He doesn't need to be seen. He doesn't need to receive any accolades. Right? It's enough for him just to see the Lord exalted. It's enough for him to be an encourager behind the scenes. And that's really just a wonderfully sweet place to be. And it's just as in vital, that position being an encourager behind the scenes, it's just in, as vital and important as any pulpit preaching ministry a man can have. So you know what? I'd really encourage you this morning. Pray about it. But I'd encourage you, because I believe this is God's heart for us. I'd encourage you to make people a project. To seek to pour into somebody's life for a month. To allow yourself an opportunity to invest in the lives of another for six months, for a year, for a lifetime. And then just sit back and see what God will do. You know, I promise you'll walk away with the greater portion of blessing as a result of those that you've poured into. And, and this is exactly what I see in these verses here, right, that are before us this morning. It's a healthy ministry. There's preaching going on. People are getting saved. There's encouraging going on. People are going for it with the Lord. There's teaching going on. People being brought uh, and taught, being taught uh, uh, that they too can teach others. It's discipling that's happening. In verse 26, right at the end, it says, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And I think this is very important to see. Do you know what the, the, the name Christian means? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but literally, it means, did you say follower of Christ? Yeah, literally, that's what it means. A party of or a follower of Christ. A Christian is a follower of Christ. In the Roman world, if you were a soldier, you would be named after your general. If you were in Caesar's army, you were called a Caesarean, right? Uh, in Latin, when you add the I-A-N after, at the end of the word, it means that you're, you followed that person. You were named after that person. So here in Antioch, the followers of Christ are called Christians. See, we know throughout secular history that Antioch uh, had this quick wit about them. The people there at Antioch, they, they had this quick wit and they tagged people with little names. It's kind of like what we do today. They tagged them with little names that were funny. It was just the humorous things that they did. And here, Christians are tagged with this name for the first time. Hey, Christian, you guys are like little Christ. That's what they're saying. It was meant to be derogatory. But that, but um, it was meant to be derogatory. But Christians back then, they embraced it as a badge of honor. Right? They thought it was pretty cool to be associated with Jesus in any way. I mean, some of you are too young to remember <laughs> back in the 70s. Anybody remember the 70s? Well, of course you do, right? When they called Christians Jesus freaks, right? And their response was, you know, that's pretty cool. It's true. We are Jesus freaks, right? Thanks for noticing and, and when I became a Christian, and I was so excited what God was doing in my life, and I began sharing with everyone I could. And, and the guys that I worked with started to call me Bible because I wanted everybody to know what the Bible had to say, you know? So, uh, you know, they started calling me Bible. They meant it as a slur. They meant it to be derogatory. But y you know what? To me, it was cool. It was a badge of honor. To think that anyone would associate me with anything that had to do with Jesus in any way, man, I took it to be a blessing. And all the time they called me Bible, I just kind of smiled under my breath, said, praise the Lord, you know? And that's what's going on here. The people in Antioch intended the name Christian to be insulting or derogatory, but the believers saw it as a beautiful thing to be associated in anybody's mind with Jesus Christ is really a wonderful and beautiful thing. And praise the Lord for that privilege. And it is a privilege to be called Christian. Maybe this has happened to you. You know, sometimes I've had people uh, come to me, people I've never met, people I don't know. And again, maybe this has happened to you, but they've come up to me and they've said, you're a Christian, right? And, and uh, you know, to think that someone you, you don't know, you know, to think that they could see Christ in you in such a way that they would associate you with him. I mean, is there a greater compliment in this life? Is there a greater blessing in this life? You know, I think it's also important to understand it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They were first named Christians in Antioch. Before that, they were named, uh, you know, they were called the people of the way. They were called believers. They were called saints. But what's important to notice is the disciples were first called, uh, they were called Christians first in Antioch, right? Meaning that uh, it has this dual meaning. It also means that it had a priority in their lives. Hey, so good to meet you. Where are you from? I'm a Christian. <laughs> okay, so uh, what do you do? I told you I'm a Christian. You know, that's first and foremost in my life. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. It's so interesting because Eusebius, very early in the fourth century, he wrote about this person that was martyr. His name was Sanctus I. And what happened was the people who captured him wanted to break him. So they asked him, where are you from? And he said, I'm a Christian. They said, what city do you live in? He said, I'm a Christian. And, and it got to the place 
every response, the response he had for every question asked was, I'm a Christian, because that's what he was first and foremost. And they got to the place where they couldn't handle uh, the way he was saying this, right? And they wanted to break Sanctus the first, but it got to the point where they just got tired of it and they ended up killing him. And the words that were on his lips when they martyred him were, I am a Christian, right? I'm a follower of Christ. And the, the idea that we're called, that I'm called by the name of Christ, boy, I tell you what, to me, it's just overwhelming. The reality of it, I'm so blessed by it. Christian is what I want to be first and foremost. It's what I want to be. It really breaks my heart when I ask people, hey, are you a Christian? No, I'm a Catholic. Hey, are you a Christian? Uh, I'm a Calvinist. Hey, are you a Christian? I'm a Baptist. Hey, are you a Christian? I'm a Protestant. You know, uh, you can be all those things. I don't actually really care. But the real issue is, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you recognized that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? And have you given your life to Him? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Are you now living for Him first and foremost? That's what it is to be a Christian. You know, uh, we talked last week. We, we talked about it last week. And we need, uh, we, we're going to talk about it again this week. The need to purpose things in our heart, right? To determine beforehand what we're going to do in regards to a, a given situation, right? This is something that I think we need to purpose in our hearts. I've purposed in my heart to be a Christian first, to allow Jesus Christ to be first and foremost in my life. Hey, have I achieved that goal? Am I perfected? No. I'm a work in progress. When you see me, you should see a neon sign over my head under construction. But I'm pressing on, even though I do fail. I'm pressing on. I think that this verse is so very beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful one to understand. It was here in Antioch, this pagan city, right? The center of pagan worship. The center of loose morals and, and just widespread immorality unimaginable filth and debauchery. It's here that the believers took a stand to be Christians first and foremost. Morally speaking, I don't think we're far behind Antioch, if we're behind them at all. Our nation is in, in trouble. Our state is in trouble. You know, I want people, you know, to see me as we're to see us as we're living in a loose and pagan society. I want people to see Jesus reigning supremely in our lives. I want people to label me as a Christian, right? A follower of, a follower of Christ, first and foremost. That's what I want people to see in me. That's what I want people to say about me. You know, the old, the old saying, if being a Christian was a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know what? I want there to be so much evidence in my case that they wouldn't even bother with a trial. They'd just string me up. That's one, what I want to be, Christian, first and foremost. Well, we'll finish up here, verse 27. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. This Claudius Caesar reigned between something like 41 to 53 AD, something like that. And during this time, there are actually secular records of tremendous famine, right? There are a couple famines in Rome during this time. Down in Egypt, there's a famine. And there was a very severe famine in Judea during this time. In verse 29 says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to their brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Agabus is someone we're going to read about later uh, on in the book of Acts. But it's, it's really interesting to me to look at him because he's a prophet and he stands up and shows by the Spirit, it says. How did he show him by the Spirit? What does that even look like? I don't know. I don't know. But what I think is really important for us to understand is 
there is such a thing of, as prophecy by the Spirit, right? You might remember in previous studies, we, we, we've spoken about how the word prophecy has this dual meaning, right? And, and there's one meaning is foretelling, and that's what's going on here. This is what um, Agabus is, is doing. You know, God is revealing through him. He's foretelling what's going to take place in the future before it actually happens. But the other uh, definition, the other meaning of the word prophecy is forthtelling. You know, speaking forth God's word in a given circumstance. Maybe you've experienced this in the past. Maybe you're aware of someone who's going through a difficult uh, time. And God puts a verse on your heart to share with them. And when you shared it with them, man, it touched them. It strengthened them. You know, it ministered to them, right? That also is prophecy. And, and, and I want to encourage everyone, don't let anyone tell you that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. Don't let anyone tell you that those gifts have passed away with the apostles because it's just not true. There's a place in the church today for the gifts, right? There's a place for prophecy to function in the church today. In fact, my prayer, right, and desire is that every single Sunday, God would speak prophetically through the teaching of his word and that he would speak into our lives, right? There's also a time for prophecy as we gather together and pray Sunday mornings before church. That's a time that I encourage each of you Listen, if God has given you a word, that's the time to speak it out. You know, but that's not the only time. That's not the only time to speak it. Again, if God lays a verse on your heart for someone, be bold and go and share it with them. Go and tell them what God has given you. Let them uh, receive a, a word of, from God through you. You know, you should understand that God wants to speak. Right? He wants to speak something to you so that when you share it, it will bless others. That's his heart. There's a place for the working of the Spirit in and through the church today. The gifts of, of God are not dead. Prophecy, gifts of healing, miracles, the gift of faith, tongues and interpretation of tongues. They're all for the church today. And that's why God has given us guidelines on how they should operate uh, within the church today. How should they operate? decently and in order, right? In a way that draws people to the Lord. So Agabus, he stands up, he shows by the Spirit that there's this great famine coming uh, into the world. Again, how does he show it? I, I don't really know. But he says, something's going to happen and it's going to be bad. And what's the first response from the believers there in Antioch? Verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Their first response when they heard that there was a need wasn't, hey, God bless you guys up there in Jerusalem. Man, I hope you get through this. I mean, God bless you. Be warm, be filled. That wasn't their response, right? These believers, 300 miles away from Jerusalem, people who are unknown to the believers in Jerusalem, determined in their hearts to give, to meet a need. Now, I haven't read all the annals of history up to this point in time, but it is my understanding that up until this point in time, there's never before, there's never ever been a relief effort to meet the needs of people who have survived a natural disaster. Of course, you know, the Roman government, they would send help out to a Roman province. But until this point in time, never before had people banded together out of love, seeking to minister and meet the needs of people they didn't know, right? This is the first time in history. And it was the church that did it. The church did it. You know, and it's such a loving, wonderful church, this church in Antioch. People are coming to the Lord. They're being encouraged. They're being taught. And they're giving. They have a giving heart. Right? Winston Churchill said, 
We make a living by what we get. But we make a life by what we give. Right? Giving is an important part uh, of being a believer. Sharing with others, you know, uh, those things that God has given to us. Right? Not only, I'm not only talking about our finances. You know, that's actually the easiest and the least of the ways we're to give. You know? But we're also to give of our lives. Give our talents. Right? To give of our resources that God has blessed us with. You know, I've said it many times, uh, and I'll say it again. The happiest people I know, and I bet you it's the same for you, the happiest people that you know are people that are just ridiculous givers. I mean, givers, there it's like they can't give enough, right? Those are the happiest people I know. And look at what it says. They gave, it says, each according to his ability. Again, not to put too fine a point on it, but what that means is that those that had much gave much. Those that had little, you know, they possessed little, they gave from the little bit that they had, right? But that's not all it means. It also means that they gave according to their faith's ability, right? They gave in proportion to their faith. They understood that this was um, God's work, and they trusted God to replace whatever it is uh, that they were giving so that they could, this was the motive, so that they could give even more, right? They understood that this was God's work. And this, their giving, this was a witness and a testimony to the grace and love of God in their lives. They wanted to bless the Lord by giving to the church in Jerusalem, who, by the way, held a prejudice against the Gentiles down in Antioch and Gentiles in general, Right? But this church in Antioch was willing to give, to give liberally out of love for the Lord in spite of the prejudices. You know, what a beautiful witness uh, this church is of God's grace. Such a good example. And notice that it says in verse 29 that they determined to send relief. Again, it's something that they need to determine. Uh, they determined ahead of time to give of their finances, of their time, of their talents. Something that we need to determine ahead of time, right? If we fail to determine ahead of time that we're going to give of our resources uh, the, that the Lord has blessed us with, probably what's going to happen is, is you're just going to neglect that, that giving. Personally, Tina and I, we're, we've determined that we're going to give of what the Lord has blessed us with. You know, because the way I see it, it's just one more way that we can be part of God's work. It's just one more way that we can be part of building the kingdom. So, you know what? We've determined to tithe. We give a minimum of 10% every paycheck. Tina and I, we're also committed to giving missions to missions on a regular basis and other ministries that the Lord has placed on my heart. And I don't say this to boast at all, right? I'm not saying it to elevate us as some sort of example, Right? I'm just trying to share with you how important it is to us to give of the things that God has blessed us with. This month, Brian and I, we're going to lead a team to hungry. We're expecting God to do great things. And, uh, you know, it's something that, that we're doing from our own expenses. We've saved for this. None of the missionary work that we do is paid for by this church. And just so you know, it, the money that is given to this church, it goes to paying bills. It goes to electricity, it goes to supplies, it goes to in the internet, you know, all the things that you would expect. But as a church, we're also committed to giving, supporting missionaries around the world. Some of the missionaries you know, some of the missionaries you don't know. But we're committed to this because we want to impact the world for Jesus Christ as a church. The believers in Antioch determined to give ahead of time, but if you don't purpose it in your heart that you're going to give again, most likely it's not going to happen. And it says in verse 30, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I love this because not only was Saul trusted to be a teacher, now he's trusted to be a representative of the church. He and Barnabas are trusted to take this money and to give it to the elders in Jerusalem. By the way, this is the first time that elders are mentioned in the book of Acts. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where you see the qualifications 
uh, for the men who are called by God to be elders in the church. Uh, elder, bishop, pastor, overseer of the church. Uh, uh, it's the same office with the same qualifications. Of course, the qualifications for deacons are also found there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And really the only difference between the two, the uh, pastor, bishop, elder, overseer, and the bishop, uh, sorry, the deacons, is, is that the pastor, bishop, overseer is ha to have an aptitude to teach while the deacons have been called to a practical uh, ministry, you know, service practically within the church is what they're called to do. One's not better than the other. They're, they're just different. And they're both very vital to a healthy church. Well, I can tell you, as I go through these verses that we looked at this morning, it's just a beautiful thing to see. Christians just going out, not with any particular call, but just going out preaching the word, encouraging others in the faith, taking uh, people deeper in their knowledge of God through the teaching of the word. Christians who are loving, not just in word, but in deed also, giving of their resources in order to be a blessing to others. Even those who haven't thought the best of them in the past, those uh, who have treated them shamefully. You know, this church in Antioch, they don't care about that, right? Because they're seeking to see God magnified and glorified in and through their lives. And my prayer is that we would be like these early believers, right? That we would be preaching the word, that we would be encouraging others, that we'd be teaching and discipling others, taking others deeper in the word, being part of raising others up in the faith, equipping them for the work of the ministry that's ahead. And I pray that we would be givers of the things that God has given us, knowing that we're not going to outgive God. I believe if we give out what God has brought in, we'll never lack. I believe that with all my heart. He's always uh, replaced the things that we've put out for the kingdom of God. And I, and I believe that for every life as you give. And, and I'm not, I'm not uh, a, a prosperity doctrine guy. Don't hear me wrong, okay? I just believe that's a principle. God's not gonna be our debtor. And I would very much like to encourage each of us today to determine to do these things that we talked about today, to determine to do these things, determine them in our heart. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you so very much for the abundant grace, the abundant mercy, the abundant love that the Bible says you have lavished upon us, Lord. Grace upon grace. Lord, and I just pray you would work these things in us, Lord. Help us to be those people that are um, encouraging, that we are preaching, we're encouraging, we're teaching, we're giving, we're discipling. Lord, not for any other reason other than see people running for you and seeing them produce fruit in their life that would bring you glory. Lord, we love you. We've given you our lives, Lord. Help us to walk in those things that you've called us to do. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.